0: My name's Adrian Goldberg and welcome to the Byline Times podcast. The Byline Times, it's what the papers don't say, what radio doesn't report and what telly doesn't tell you. This time, banking on climate change. We're talking about powerful financial institutions acting as if we don't need to take urgent action to combat global warming. Over recent weeks, activists from Extinction Rebellion and its sister organisation, Money Rebellion, have been disrupting the AGMs of banks such as Lloyds, HSBC and Barclays, protesting against their continued funding of projects which will contribute yet more CO2 to the Earth's atmosphere. We're going to be hearing from Gail Bradbrook, the founder of Money Rebellion, also a founder member of Extinction Rebellion she's just had charges of conspiracy dropped after two years after she challenged Barclays on their climate change performance. Before that though, just a reminder that the Byline Times podcast is funded by subscriptions to the Byline Times. That's our brilliant monthly newspaper which combines the best of our online offerings with content that you can't read anywhere else. Get details about how to subscribe over at bylinetimes.com. That's at bylinetimes.com. And don't forget as well our new film at Byline tv with john sweeney the eastern front terror and torture in ukraine watch that at byline.tv welcome then to gail bradbrook and gail welcome Uh, just tell me a little bit about these disruptions at the agms of leading banks
1: Thanks, Adrian. It's great to be here. So since the Paris Climate Agreement, when we said the world was being committed to no more than one and a half degrees of warming, over 5.5 trillion of monies have been invested by 60 of the leading banks in new fossil fuel projects, and also they put money into rainforest destruction and biodiversity loss. And Those organisations, they have human beings in them. They've got staff, people who are held accountable by their family. The staff don't want to be doing this. We know this for a fact. So... The disruption at the AGMs is to send that ripple through saying, this is not what your brand wants to be behind. We've had disruptions at Barclays, at HSBC, at Standard Charter, at Lloyds. They've also been to Drax and to BP. Often with a lot of humour, we've got this fantastic climate choir, for example. They were singing money, money, money at HSBC last year. I think we had a Spice Girls number this time. So they find ways to do it with sort of beauty and meaning holding these folks accountable because really they're in this system that's got pressure coming from both sides. One is to have the brand be well, and the other is what's happening with the money and whether that money can carry on growing. So there are questions about where's best to invest from a purely financial point of view. And it's good to sort of keep the pressure on them to move into new investments. I mean, all that said, I think there's been about seven banks since we've been putting this pressure on alongside others that have made announcements of no new funding into oil and gas. Seems to be a a fair amount of greenwashing within that, but at least we can see that some of the pressure's working.
0: Yeah, and just to go back on the Paris Agreement in 2015, this was the line drawn in the sand. World governments agreed that they would seek to avoid increasing the Earth's temperature by 1.5 degrees by 2027. And in the last few days, the World Meteorological Organization has said that 1.5 degree increase in global temperatures is almost certain to be breached. So as a world, we have failed. But your argument is that not only have we failed, but these banks and big financial institutions, whatever they say, have been actively aiding and abetting that process.
1: Exactly. The destruction of our climate system, on which is the life support system of the planet, is being actively destroyed by the investments of banks and hedge funds and the the Black Rocks of the world, and the politicians that give them the licenses to do this. The International Energy Agency said there could be no new oil and gas and other fossil fuels, and still that has carried on and just to say with that 1.5 degrees of warming by the way what's incredible is the way this system likes to lie to itself so the same well it's an overshoot but we're going to go back it's just temporary it's sort of when is this system going to stop lying to itself one of the things with breaching these temperatures every 0.1 degrees of warming matters hugely and where the physics is is that there are tipping points and they seem to be coming online sooner for example they melting of the permafrost which releases methane And so this idea, it's been said by climate scientists, the idea that you can sort of get to a certain temperature and park it there, or even draw back on that, it's not really backed up foundationally by the science. I think there's some possibility, but I think it kind of creates this false sense of security is very dangerous for us all.
0: So, for example, when the permafrost starts to melt and methane is released, that methane in itself will add Global warming, it will add to climate change, and we're not in yeah. control of that process.
1: Exactly. And methane's a more impactful greenhouse gas than carbon dioxide. So the idea that we can keep releasing that. And bear in mind all of these fracking and these other projects around fossil fuels, they actually release methane themselves from the point of extraction. There are many, many obvious reasons why we need to stop making these investments. You know, and I think that's been the role of Money Rebellion. I helped to found Extinction Rebellion. And we had a very sort of simple message, which was we were demanding of the government to tell the truth that we wanted a rapid decarbonisation and to halt biodiversity loss and a Citizens Assembly to move us forwards. And I think a as Citizens Assembly would be the way in which, as a country, we figure out how to make the change together, kind of like having a jury Of randomly selected people to be with experts and to decide on the path forwards because there's so much, it's going to be difficult to do this together. But I think what we always knew as founders, I can't speak on behalf of everybody, but it was part of our sort of documentation, is that these problems come from an economic system that's got destruction baked in. And so money rebellion was sort of a strategic move to say we've now got to start talking about this economic system. People can understand that financing things like tar sands for example which is one of the world's biggest industrial projects in alberta in, in canada it hurts your heart to look at pictures of that place and the destruction of the land there to get relatively small amounts of fossil fuels so the banks have funded that kind of thing barclays are the seventh largest funder of arctic oil and gas they're one of the largest funders of coal of fracking etc now we can understand that we need to stop that kind of funding but we also need to have this bigger conversation about our economy.
0: You mentioned tar sands. I just wonder if within recent investments by banks or financial institutions, there are any particularly egregious examples that you would say, look, this shows that for all the pledges that have been made, they're really yeah. not serious. About well, I, I, I take
1: fracking. <laughs> Coal is a terrible thing to be investing in. It's the biggest carbon footprint, people still investing in coal. You've got this issue where because of the melting of the ice, in principle, fossil fuels are more available in the Arctic. The last thing we want to be doing is using the destruction of the Arctic sea ice to extract more fossil fuels. And yet you've got major banks that are investing in oil and gas extraction in the Arctic. And they're some of the most pristine and delicate environments with beautiful creatures like the narwhals i think that they're in one of the seas that they're digging into right now or wanting to and if you have oil leaks in those environments there's no way to clean it up either so you know you've got so much danger and destruction baked into these projects and yet new money's going in to support them
0: tar sands would see a big oil pipeline going into this area of I wouldn't say it's unspoilt natural beauty because i read that the eating of shellfish was banned there in 1972 because <laughs> industrialization but this would have a significant impact on a huge region of canada
1: If you look at the devastation that's already been wrought there, as I said, it really breaks your heart just to see the pictures. You can see this from uh, satellite imagery. It's such a a large industrial project. They call this beautiful, pristine forest that's on top of the tar sands the overburden. (laughs) They scrape it off and this idea that you can just plant some trees afterwards at some point when we know that it takes centuries for ecosystems like that to establish. So
0: your disruptions obviously make their point but you're arguing for systemic change how do you achieve that
1: well I think first of all what we need to reckon with is that systemic change is coming in the words of Greta Thunberg whether we like it or not you know it was the Deutsche Bank economist that said and I'm paraphrasing them but either we get our heads around a world in which we don't push for economic growth. We accept that we can't keep growing the economy on a finite planet, and in which case this form of civilization is finished, or we carry on the destruction that we're doing right now and the damage and the devastation to the life support systems of the Earth, in which case this civilization's finished, right? So I think the way this was reported, they said, on the one hand, we're fucked, on the other hand, we're fucked, you know, like it is, <laughs> it is coming in this change. Now, we're in a collapse scenario, actually. Kevin Anderson of the Manchester Institute around climate change said that it's widely accepted that the temperatures that we're heading towards that civilization will collapse. And there's actually a whole branch of academia called collapsology. So people like Professor Jen Bendell, he's got a new book coming out in there. He claims that the UK already entered collapse in 2016. And you can see signs of that. We have, 1500 people a week dying at excess deaths, the destruction of the public services and the fact that we respond to COVID in anything like a coherent way for some time. So, Although I, arguably
0: people would question how closely connected that is with climate change.
1: On COVID itself, I don't know and I'm no expert on that by any means but in terms of pandemics and health crises absolutely we know that in a warming world, in a world of biodiversity destruction, there will be increasing pandemics, probably one a year, I think I read somewhere. And diseases like malaria, etc., start to spread to countries that have never had that sort of problem before. New viruses can be released as the permafrost melts. I think the World Health Organization said this is the biggest health threat to the entire planet you know destruction of climate and biodiversity so on all fronts when you're talking about system change we're saying that the system is going to change it's kind of like a plane crash or something can we help it to have a decent death some people talk about the hospicing of modernity there's a fantastic book of that title how do we help this thing to have a good death or is it going to collapse into some form of surveillance capitalism or into sort of mad max chaos or can we have something more beautiful and it's been a really amazing week actually in that several colleagues from Money Rebellion were at the conference in Brussels on degrowth. Not the most sexy title for a different form of economic system, admittedly, but it means something specific in the academia. We talk about well-being economics or give it a a nicer title like that. And that sort of proposal is the kind of thing that we need to vision around now and understand that's a different kind of economic system that we could be running. And interestingly, Adrian, when you did your opening for the show and you were saying, we have the news that others don't, I noticed Julia Steinberg tweeting just yesterday that she'd spoken to many journalists at this conference and all of them said to her, we will not be able to get past our editors a story about degrowth, we cannot share this idea that growth is not a good thing.
0: Whether or not people can get it past their editors, I would imagine that in the kind of social democracies that we have in Western Europe, it would be quite a hard sell to voters. So just give us a sense of degrowth, because on the face of it, I suspect that for many people, it might sound like a frightening prospect.
1: Yeah, obviously, there'll be sort of propaganda that will try to equate degrowth with a recession. Not true at all. Recessions are events that are baked into the current system that we have, they're endogenous to it. Degrowth is the planned change to the economic system that means that you focus on the meeting of basic needs first. So universal basic services and and degrowth that go hand in hand, they're part of the same thing. Everybody would need to have their basic needs met. Anna at the New Economic Foundations already done the costings on that. It's not as high as people make think, as a 2% to 3% GDP, if you want to still use that measure. But fundamentally, what you're doing is measuring the well-being of both the environment that you're part of and how people are functioning. And you have a system that's not designed for accumulation by the few and the inequality that that causes. And as we know from work like The Tipping Point, all of the problems that come with depths of inequality, all the unhappiness and the stresses and the populism and the roots towards authoritarianism that we're in right now. So I think degrowth as a concept people look it up. You've got people like Jason Hickel writing about it, Tim Parikh and others, Julie Steinberg. It's actually a really visionary concept about how we can be on this planet. The other aspect to it is that there are countries in the majority world, Global South, that have so-called debts that they're supposed to pay, which is a racket, as we all know, if they would get together and refuse to pay these debts or just default on them because they can't pay them, and why on earth would Pakistan, after what's happened to Pakistan, be paying debts to the sort of bankers, you know, is quite mind-boggling. If a number of countries got together and, decided not to pay would create degrowth in the north because our growth is based on the back of exploitation of the majority world so this is also a route to decolonization
0: in your own situation gail you faced this two years of uncertainty because you were accused of conspiracy very serious charge one that could lead to a substantial jail sentence I don't want to say anything that might incriminate you now, that the charges sure. have been dropped, but I'm just conscious that we've started this conversation by talking about people disrupting AGMs and those kind of actions can lead to people getting perhaps small fines in some cases or perhaps yeah. a, a conditional discharge, depending on what happens. But what you faced was materially greater in degree. So just explain a bit of the background to that and tell me what it's been like seeing you.
1: Well I I made a deal with myself and the universe some years ago that said that I understand that we need mass civil disobedience at this time and for some of us that's going to come with risk. So it was a moment, it was 5.30 in the morning, there was a loud knock at the door and I woke in a start threw on my dressing gown and ran to the door and there were four Met Police officers there. And I knew that moment would come at some point. So in some ways, it didn't feel very surprising. But what you do have to do in any movements for change, you have to have a sort of ecosystem of different actions. Some are simpler than others. They all have their role and value, and it's how they work together. And there were people in our sector, people like market forces, who'd been trying to break the story of the bank financing for some time, and hadn't really managed that. And they said that when myself and other women, we took hammers to the windows of the bank in the spirit of the suffragettes, we did it in a peaceful way at a time of day when nobody could get hurt and we broke windows. Mine was a local branch. Others went to the headquarters. Of a and, well-known
0: high street bank.
1: <laughs> well, of several, actually. Our ex our doctors have been to J.P. Morgan, etc. So what happens in our movement is that people can take autonomous actions and others sometimes feel called to do similar. So the window breaking actions spread rapidly and I was accused of sort of orchestrating the whole lot because I had got money rebellion off the ground. So one of the other actions that we did was credit card action based on reparations. You know, we've got some leading reparationists in our movement and we were inspired by them. And so we took out these credit cards by this egregious bank and we made a donation to Survival International who are a really amazing advocacy organisation for Indigenous people across the world. We made that payment with their agreement. I think the largest one was £7,500 by a GP, they wouldn't give me that much credit.
0: <laughs> so, so I understand this then. A number of people took out Barclays credit cards, Yeah. used the credit card to make a donation to Survival International, who support the yeah. rights of Indigenous peoples. But then you wrote to Barclays saying you've got no intention of paying that debt. You please saw please. it as a form of reparation.
1: Yeah, and we said that if they would write off the debt, we would match it. So we gave them the opportunity to do the right thing. We made a little video online. I think people find it if they put Barker's Repair Harm Action. And really, it was a a way of saying that these banks need to repair the damage that they've done. That needs to be part of what happens. And that we do have power as consumers. Obviously, my credit rating's trash now. and For some of us, that matters more than others. But that's the cost of that one. But
0: Because of the default.
1: Yeah. One of the things that can be argued is that that's an act of fraud. I say it's an act of love. They came in my house anyway. I mean, it was all a bit bizarre thinking that these people had stayed in a hotel overnight to come and get me, (laughs) that sort of thing. They followed me in the bathroom, followed me in my bedroom. It was it was a bit, I think, designed to intimidate and take you out in handcuffs, even though you're not a threatening person. And they essentially accused me of trying to bring down the finance system. And I said it was doing a sterling job itself, actually. And then I also said, given that these banks had engaged in the mis-selling, otherwise known as fraud, actually, of PPI, they'd rigged LIBOR. They participated in various offshore financial tax savings shenanigans, the FinCEN files, Panama Papers, LuxLeaks. You know, how many times do we need to know what they're up to and have that exposed? They'd nearly brought down the entire finance system with their casino banking, etc. And I said to the police officers, when did you last arrest a banker? because I just owe them £70, you know. They did look a bit embarrassed at that point. What we're really dealing with is a super toxic, corrupted, monopolistic system. Even a person who thinks capitalism is a good idea would look at the system as it is and say, this is not really a functional form of capitalism. It's embraced the idea of monopoly power, something relatively new in the last few years. It's certainly very corrupted and it's destroying life on earth so it's going to have to change
0: and just to be clear when you were talking about the instances of misbehavior by banks you weren't talking about any one specific bank you were talking about banks generally and a structural issue with the banking system in, I mean, in this country I mean, and in the western world yeah
1: each one of them has their own list of crimes that we know about. I mean, HSBC, for example, in the tax justice movement is known as holy shit, banks corrupt. In one Mexican bank, they made their windows bigger because people were bringing in boxes of money for laundering. These folks have got long histories of corrupted behaviour, but the system basically allows it. Occasionally, somebody will get prosecuted and sometimes they'll get fined. It's a cost of doing business. The system as a whole carries on, and it carries on the destruction of the planet.
0: In your case, though, the threat was hanging over you for two years of a substantial prison sentence. How does it feel now to find that the charges have been dropped?
1: I'm glad that one's out of the way, Adrian. I mean, that one could have had up to 10 years. Actually, to be honest, I know that the way I... Organise. I don't really encourage people to take actions, I don't think that's appropriate so I didn't think they were going to find evidence of that anyway. I was in court this January, that was a magistrates court for breaking the window at Barclays Bank. And I made an unusual argument, and if the judge had been minded to, which he wasn't, I gave a due reason to let me off. And it's this argument of consent, and this comes back to my belief in humanity. So what I was arguing was that people within the banking system and wider society actually consent to this breaking of windows. They want us to do it. And It sounds like
0: an incredible claim, Gail, that banks would want you, or that people working within banks, would want you yeah. to smash their windows.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I provided evidence. So first of all, i just broke in a window at the DFT, and I was on the Wreath Lecture with Mark Carney. He thanked me for my actions and said that social movements were really important. You have civil servants behind the scenes saying, carry on. We're like you, but just the suited and booted version. And Donica McCarthy is a friend of mine. He's also been a journalist at the independent. He had a meeting with the head of sustainability at one of these banks. And that person said the actions of money rebellion are making my job easier. And then finally, Zoe Cohen and I had a meeting with Chris Skinner from the financer and he invited his friend who was a former vice chairman of a major high street bank. And we shared what our actions had been and he said that he understood why we needed to do them and that change had not come fast enough, that the chief executive wanted to make change but didn't feel like they could within the current system. And I asked that person to come out publicly and say that, but what they had agreed was to sort of Chatham House rules for the start of the meeting, and so I took that as a from Chris and Zoe and myself as a signed explanation of what had gone off in this meeting and what had been said because what was actually interesting in it is that for Money Rebellion, we had two main things that we were saying. One was that stop financing (laughs) terrible things, but also admit that you're trapped in a system and that you think that system needed to change. And what was annoying was that the sort of Barclays Press Agency chose to call us anti-capitalists. It's a trope to say that you're, anti-business and anti-market. It's a way of trying to make you sound stupid, as if we don't have nuanced things to say about economics and as if we don't need a grown-up conversation about economics. And what this guy was saying was quite clearly in alignment with the demands of money rebellion. But unfortunately, these people aren't willing to come out and say these things publicly. I mean, maybe in some cases, they feel like they can do more behind the scenes, but I think fundamentally, a lot of people just don't have the level of courage it takes to stick your neck above the parapet. Quite frankly, this system that we live in offers comforts and incentives to keep quiet and to be co-opted by it.
0: Yeah, I really appreciate your time. Thank you. That's Gail Bradbrook from Money Rebellion. I'm Adrian Goldberg. You've been listening to the Byline Times podcast produced by me and Harvey White. This episode has been brought to you by We. Bring audio. Before we go, just a reminder that the Byline Times podcast exists thanks to subscribers to The Byline Times. Don't forget to take out a subscription. Go to bylinetimes.com for more details. That's at bylinetimes.com for details on how to subscribe. And don't forget, as well, that latest film produced with John Sweeney, The Eastern Front terror and torture in Ukraine. Watch it now at Byline TV. Thanks for listening. I'll see you again very soon. Cheers now. Bye-bye.